today we're going to look at one of the interesting characters in the scriptures. Kind of a curiosity almost. Um, he just shows up on the scene in Genesis chapter 14, and three, four verses later, he's gone. And we see him mentioned one more time in the Old Testament, in Psalms uh, 110, verse 4. And he's mentioned there in the form of a prophecy, that there will be a priest coming in the order of this man. And that's it in the Old Testament. Four verses, basically. And yet there is such significance about what is being spoken about who this guy is. And what we will really be seeing is it's explained to us in much greater detail detail in Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, it says this. Now, in Hebrews, and I'll mention this again a little later, but when we start reading about this in Hebrews, what's taking place is, you know, the, the, the Christian faith is relatively new. And the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter, and, and, he, and he's trying to teach and talk to people who were Jews for and their history and their heritage. were They were Jews for hundreds of years, generations and generations. And now everything's changing. And there was this sect over here who was trying to say, hey, you don't need to give up everything. What we had was good. It was good. It was good having the Levitical priesthood. It was good to have those priests going before us and being the mediator between us and God. It was good. We had those sacrifices. It was good. All these holidays that we had, it was good. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, no way. This is so much better. And what we're going to look at is his teaching on this. But it said in Hebrews 5.11, concerning him, the man we're going to be talking about, we have much to say. And I love these words. It takes me off the hook a little bit. It says, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Well, I hope none of us have become dull of hearing, but it is a little bit hard to explain because the name of the man that we're going to be looking at is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is called a priest of the God Most High. And he's also a king. And there's so much there for us to glean. But the reality is, a lot of theologians don't agree on some of the things we'll be talking about. So my goal this morning isn't to clarify exactly who Melchizedek is or was. But I want us to see in what he represents the superiority of Jesus Christ the superiority of our hope that we have, the superiority of the, the, the salvation that has been assured to us. That's really the important thing. Because that argument that the writer of Hebrews was making to the Jewish people is really an argument that needs to be made today. Whatever you're looking at for your hope to heaven, if it's not Jesus, it's not going to work. We have a Savior an amazing Savior. We have a high priest, an amazing high priest. And he's superior to anything else. And that's really my goal, is to help us to grab a hold and understand and appreciate that even more than we already do. Well, to set the stage for this, once we, we need to go back a little bit into Hebrew, or into Genesis chapter 13. We're working our way through Genesis with a whole lot of different things taking place. And in Genesis chapter 13, we kind of left... Um, Abraham, part of his journey, he came from Ur all the way up to Haran, all the way back down. There was He stopped in Shechem, he stopped in Bethel, and he continued on down all the way into Egypt because there was a famine. 
And now he and his family and his nephew Lot and his family are going to head back up into the Canaan, the promised land, the land of promise. And they work their way up, back up to Bethel. Hopefully you remember Bethel was one of the two places that he built an altar. And he gets back to Bethel and he builds another altar to worship God. And realizing at this time, though Abraham is worshiping God and he's a believer and he's faithful to God, most of Canaan is the Canaanites, pagan religion all around them. So even him building an altar is kind of symbolic of he's planting, he's put planting a, a, a tree here, so to speak, saying, we're going to worship God in this place. So he's, he comes back. Well, they get back to Bethel. And I, I have a map I wanted to show you. Hopefully you can see some of it. This is kind of a map of Abraham's travels all the way from Ur, in the Chaldeans, all the way up around to Haran, which was about a 600-mile trek, by the way. Then he came back down. Finally, he got down to Shechem, built an altar, and Bethel built an altar. That's another 400 miles. And then the famine came, and he continued down into Egypt, about another 225, 250 miles. He went a long ways, and he's still not where he's supposed to be. Finally, he goes back up, as I'm saying today, back up to Bethel. So all in all, he, he it doesn't tell us how long this took, but he traveled somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 miles. But he's finally there. And when they get there, there's a small problem that arises. God has blessed Abraham and God has blessed Lot. It tells us that they are rich, especially Abraham. It says he's rich in livestock, he's rich in gold, he's rich in silver, and he's rich in people, many people. In his family, his servants, his household is how they would use the word to describe everybody. But so is Lot. Not quite to the degree that Abraham is, but Lot is too. And all of a sudden, this is causing a problem. And the problem is this. There's so many people, so much livestock, that the herdsmen are starting to argue and fight with one another because there's not enough land for all the livestock. They can't produce enough food for all the people. So Abraham goes to Lot and says, you know, we don't want to have problems between our people and your people. We don't want problems between you and me, Lot. There's so much land. God has promised us the land north, south, east, and west. There's so much land. He says, you look around and tell me which way you want to go. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looks around, and probably like many people would do, he looks over here to the to the west, and a lot of mountains, a lot of rough terrain. Looks over here to the east, the Jordan River Valley. Green. Matter of fact, the scripture describes it, it looked as the Garden of the Lord. It looked like the Garden of Eden, probably in comparison to over here. And he says, I'll, I'll go that way. And Abraham says, okay, fine, I'll go that way. And Lot actually ends up going not only to the east down to the Jordan, he goes a little bit further south, kind of to the south part of what we now call the Dead Sea. And there was a large part of the Dead Sea that they believed back in those days was not the sea. It's kind of a very shallow part of the sea. And they believed that that was part of a very fertile valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. So Lot settles his tents at Sodom. 
They went in opposite directions. Some time passes. And to get an idea of the history a little bit of that time, there were lots of kings. Lots of kings. Kings of cities. Kings of bigger areas. Well, there was a king to the, to the east. His name, and I'm only going to pronounce this once because I butcher it every time. Kadorla Omar. Twice. Kadorla Omar. He was the big cheese, evidently, but he had a number of other allies. So there was four kings came together. And for, for 12 years, they had been receiving tribute from all these kings over here by Sodom and Gomorrah and all over here by Canaan. They had been paying. And it says in the 13th year, they said, you know, why are we doing this? He's way over there to the east. We're not going to continue to send him tribute. Why would we do that? So in the 13th year, the Bible says they rebelled against this king. And then it says in the 14th year, he says, we're going over there and we're going to straighten these people out. So he and his allies, so there's four kings come. And they're conquering cities along the way. Taking people, taking livestock. It's a, it's a, it's a large group. And it actually, they swing further south. I can't remember what I had on this map. Is it, can we put that second map up there? They came down and they went kind of around Sodom and Gomorrah first, if you follow those red arrows. And they went down to El Paran. And then they went up to Kadesh Barnea, conquering all the way. And then they swung back up to Tamar, Zoar, and Sodom and Gomorrah, conquering everybody. It even talks about the kings of Sodom that they, went, they fled into the valley, but there was tar pits everywhere, and they all, a lot of them fell into the tar pits. Not everybody. It reads like it might have been, but it wasn't everybody. And they continue on, and they took all the livestock, all the food, all everything from Sodom, as well as the other cities, but in particular Sodom. And it says they also took the people. And then it says, and they took Lot and his family. And they head north. And they're headed north all the way up to Dan and Damascus and beyond. And it's roughly from, if you can see over here where Hebron is, that's right in that area where Bethel was. That's kind of right in the area where Abraham was. And it's about 200 and, about 180 miles, I believe it was, to that Dan, a little bit further to Damascus. And then they even went beyond. I, I point that out because it says... Somebody from Sodom escaped, and he went to Abraham. And he goes to Abraham and says, I don't know if you've heard, but we've been attacked. And they've defeated us, and they've taken all the people, including your family. And my guess is probably his too. And then something really interesting happens. It tells us that Abraham gets together 318 of his well-trained men, kind of his special ops group. As far as we know, there hadn't been a war up to this point. What were they trained for? And they took off after the king and all of this massive group of people from cities that he conquered, and there was at least... The, the original four kings and probably another half dozen kings, all there that would have been allies. And here comes Abraham with 318 guys. And it seems like Abraham also somehow or other was a pretty good tactician. 
It says they got up there near Dan, Damascus. And he split up his men. Just think of that. We go from 318 and divide it by two. 159 men. And they take turns attacking during the night. And it tells us they destroy, they conquer this massive army. Man of faith, a man of God. And then it says they followed him further north yet. So however long this took, he chased these guys for somewhere between 160 to 220 miles. Oh, that's pretty amazing. But then it's on the way home that the strange thing happens that we're going to be talking about today. It says in Genesis chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look there. I'm going to read Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. It says, After Abraham returned from defeating Kerdolaomir, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavet. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. What a contrast we see between King Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, Ahur, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamar, and let them have their share. So out of nowhere comes this king. Melchizedek. And some things take place that are really pretty amazing, except we get no explanation. This is the first time that this word priest is used in the Old Testament. The first time. The word priest in the Latin, the Latin Vulgate, means a bridge. When we see the priest in the Levitical law when it finally comes into play, The priest was what? The mediator between God and man. He went in and made the sacrifices. So we see here, he's described as the priest of the most high God. We have no idea how, why. He must have been part of that remnant of righteousness that existed going all the way back to the flood. Or maybe he was something else. We don't know for sure. And notice, when they met, he brought bread and wine, he brought a blessing, and he acknowledged that the victory was provided by God. And then another really strange thing happened. Abraham gives him 10%, one-tenth of all the spoils. 
Again, we don't know how or why this took place, but it did. And that's the end of the story. Or is it? Well, it's the end of the story in Genesis. Then finally in Psalms, we see in the writer of Psalms, David, and this is a particular psalm where it starts out, the Lord said to my Lord. So we get this interaction between Jesus and God, basically. And we see him say, there's going to be one who's going to come in the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that's all it says. But then we come to Hebrews. And again, I want to just elaborate a little bit about what was taking place here. Jesus had died on a cross for forgiveness of sins. There were believers and followers of Jesus. The church had been spreading. And as all this is taking place, Jews were accepting Jesus and leaving the Jewish structured religion. And at the same time, it was hard for them. I mean, it's hard to put ourselves in their place, but generations and generations and generations of their ancestors had worshipped a particular way. And they had worshipped the God of Abraham. And it was challenging for them to make the switch. I mean, many of us might even be able to relate. We left certain churches or certain denominational religions, and, man, we felt some pressure, some of us. Why are you leaving? Your great-grandfathers were part of the group that planted that church. What are you doing? Well, they're getting that kind of thing, but they're also got some people coming and teaching, you know, hey, it's okay, keep this Jesus thing. I'm paraphrasing now. Keep this Jesus thing. But you don't have to give up all that other good stuff. We can just kind of bring it all together. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this, what we've got, what what this Jesus is, who this Jesus is, is so superior to anything. He is so superior to the Levitical priesthood. All the, you had to be of the family of Levi to become a priest. Quite frankly, character didn't seem to matter, but as long as your genealogy was good, you could become a priest. He says, the sacrifices they're making in there, all the animals are killing, it had its place but they never forgave a single sin. Jesus died on that cross. There's a new covenant. There's a better way. There's a superior sacrifice, Jesus. And they're trying to explain this and teach this to these people. And where do they go and what do they use to teach this? They go to the story of Melchizedek. So we learn more in Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 about Melchizedek than we ever learned back in Genesis chapter 14. So I want to read a little bit, starting in, I'm going to actually start in the last verse of chapter 6, verse 20, and then read into verse 10 of chapter 7. Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. 
Then also, king of Salem, and if you would pronounce it more correctly, it would be king of Shalom, means king of peace. You can see the, the closeness of the root words there for Shalom, the Jewish greeting of peace. He says, a king of righteousness, then also king of Salem. Salem means king of peace. Then it gets really weird. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of all his plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect the tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth for Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. And without doubt, the lesser person is being blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestors. In other words, he hadn't even been born yet. Some translations say he was still in Abraham's loins. So he's making this amazing group of statements about Melchizedek and saying that there is one who is going to come in the order of Melchizedek to be like him. He's really stressing that this whole religious system that the Jews had is now futile. It's no good. Doesn't mean it was bad. Just something new and better has come. And that new and better is Jesus. And he is going to come as this king priest. This was not, this was not common for the Jewish people. You know, near as we can tell, going back to King Saul, King David, first kings. The priests, you had to be of the family. Aaron's family, Levi, the Levitical priesthood, you had to be of the family of Levi. So who is this guy? Melchizedek. As I said earlier, there's disagreement amongst theologians and those who write all the commentaries here. And there's two lines of thought, basically. One is that he is a type of Christ. He is a man who is a type of Christ, showing us Christ, they call it the antitype, the type demonstrating and revealing the antitype to us. There's others that say, no, it could only have been a Christophany. A Christophany, what does that mean? It's a, 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 a pre-incarnate Christ showing up. A theophany is God showing up in a different form. Remember when God spoke in the burning bush. Remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace and they looked in and there was four of them. They're saying, some people say, this is a Christophany. It's an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. So you have these two discussions, and quite honestly, as you go through it, you can make a good argument both ways. My position is, it doesn't matter 
for what we want to learn here. And it really doesn't matter for what the Jewish writer, the Hebrew writer, was trying to get across to the Jews. Whoever he was, what he represents is amazing. It's astounding who he is. Looking at Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, that we just read, I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to look at some of the statements that are made about Melchizedek. It says, first, he's the king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father and mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, he remains a priest forever. And back in verse 1, it says, he was the priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of all his plunder. There are so many things there that that wouldn't make sense to those people that the Hebrew writer is talking to. There was no one greater than Father Abraham. Father Abraham had received the blessings and promises of God. There was no one greater except God Almighty. And yet, this writer of Hebrews is saying, there is going to be someone of the order of Melchizedek that's greater than all that, and he is going to be a king and a priest. Melchizedek actually blessed Abraham. Abraham, Father Abraham, gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So as we look at this, I want to look at about three, maybe four things pretty quickly here. First, his name. What did we say his name was? Melchizedek. And what did we say it meant? King of righteousness. And the king of Salem. And the Salem means peace. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. There is no true peace for anyone who has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and allowed him to be king, Lord of their life. Jesus, we are seeing here, whether he's a type or a Christophany, he is telling us that there is one coming who's greater than Abraham, who's greater He's greater than the whole Levitical priesthood. He's greater than all those things. He is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And his domain, he's the king of Salem. The king of Salem, the king of peace. Salem is thought to be by many people the early name for what became Jerusalem. Jerusalem had two very ancient names. Jebus and Salem. Jebus because the area was ruled by the Jebusites. Salem. And you take those two words, Jebus, Salem, Jerusalem. So many people think that Melchizedek came forth as the king of righteousness and the king of peace from what was ancient Jerusalem. Again, not 100% certainty, but there's something there with this Melchizedek. Peace, the king of peace. And then his genealogy, and this is where the confusion really, really came in and comes in. If he is a man and he's a type of Christ, what did it say about his genealogy? He didn't have any. 
It says he didn't have any father. He doesn't have any mother. Who could that possibly be? Many would say, well, it could only be Jesus. They seem to forget the fact that Jesus did have a mother. But he was also eternal, everlasting. Those that would say that he is a type, he's a man, they say it's very significant that there's no genealogy. We've been going through the first 13 chapters of Genesis. One of the things that I've stressed many times is the genealogies, right? Had a son, had a son, had a son, had a son. We have 10 of them. And then we go again and we have 10 more in the genealogy. Genealogies were a big deal. To the priesthood, as I said earlier, to be a priest in the Jewish system, you had to be of the family of Levi. If you could not trace back your lineage to the family of Levi, you could never be a priest. The genealogy was critical. It was everything. As I said, you know, by the time of Jesus especially, the priesthood is so corrupt. It's so corrupt. Character was not near as important as genealogy. But here we have this man, Melchizedek. They don't give any genealogy. And those that think he's a type think he's just demonstrating, showing us as a type of Christ. So they didn't want to focus on an origin. We have no idea about his death whatsoever. And we know nothing about his family. So they look at his genealogy as a type. However, as a pre-incarnate Christ, you can see and make the argument. Who else could there be but Jesus, who had no beginning and whose priesthood has no end? It's eternal. Who else could it be but Jesus? So you can see whether you're going at a Christophany or a type, the main thing is this. He is superior to anything else that's ever existed, ever existed. Priesthood of Jesus is eternal. And then I'm just going to combine the next three things here. And I'm going to take the liberty of saying communion, tithing, and blessing. We don't know for sure what him bringing bread and wine represented. They had food. They had plenty of food. They got all that back when they won won the war. But he brings out bread and wine. For us looking back, we could even look at what what took place here today. It it would seem that it very well could be a representation way, way, way before Jesus was ever born of what was going to take place on the cross outside of Jerusalem thousands of years later. Before there was ever a king, the Jewish people, before there was ever a priest, it may very well have been a picture for us of the crucifixion of Jesus as our sacrificial lamb. And then we have the tithe. Many people today, when they discuss tithing in churches, one of the things you'll hear is, tithing was under the law, therefore it's no longer for today. And you're right. Tithing was truly a part of the Levitical law, the law that was given to Moses. However, the law didn't exist yet and wasn't going to exist for hundreds of years. And the tithe was given to the priest king, 
Melchizedek. Under the legal system that the law developed, the tithe was given to the priests to take care of the temple, to be able to offer up and do all of the sacrificing, and to pay and take care of the priests. The tithe today, very similar for those who would tithe. But it is not under the law. But there is a principle there that took place way back with Melchizedek and Abraham. And then the blessing. Again, we don't get this very well probably in our minds, but to a Jew, there was no one, no one greater than Abraham. If you wanted a blessing and you ever could have got one from Abraham, that's who you'd have wanted a blessing from. God himself had blessed Abraham. God himself had given the promises to Abraham that were going to be for the nation of Israel. So when you hear this, that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, in the mind of a Jewish person, that would make no sense. It even says, there is no doubt that the greater blesses the lesser. What is that saying to a Jew who's hearing those words? Melchizedek was greater than Father Abraham, who had the promises of God. All of these things are being pointed out by the writer of Hebrews to try to convince the Jewish people, the Jewish followers of Jesus, that going back to that Jewish religion is futile. It's foolishness. Don't go there. Jesus, our Savior, is superior to anything else. Jesus, our high priest, the eternal high priest, is more superior to any other priest or any other priesthood. That's the message that's trying to come across. The greater was blessed. The blesses the lesser. I believe, kind of to wind up, here, I believe that this information is important today just like it was 2,000 years ago. It's approximately 2,000 years ago when the writer of Hebrews was making this argument, and he was going back another 2,000 years. So he's using an argument from 4,000 years ago that I believe is still so relevant today. The world is looking for hope. The world is looking for love. The world is looking for peace. And there is no Savior and there is no priest greater than Jesus. He's better than anything out there. There's nothing that compares to this man, Jesus, the God-man, all God, all man, from this order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Our salvation, our salvation is in no other. Our assurance or forgiveness of sins, our hope of eternal life, all of these things are based on Jesus superior than anything else. And something we don't maybe talk about quite as much is the reality that he is our high priest. Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We talk about his position of authority. But he's also there ministering. And what is his primary ministry? Intercession. He's interceding for you and for me. Praying for us. Knows everything about us. Any accusations the enemy might bring, got to go through Jesus. And there's a picture I, I just want to share in closing of Stephen. Remember Stephen? Stephen was being 
held in front of the religious leaders of the day. And he goes into this long defense, this long, amazing teaching, historically about the Jews and their family coming to the place where he's pointing to Jesus. And they didn't like it. And it says in Acts, I think it's chapter 8, in Acts it says, you know, the people rushed at him after he finished, kind of chased him out of, outside the city limits, and then they picked up stones and were going to be stoning him. And then we read something so unique, something that's always just so intrigued me. It says, he looked up into heaven, and what did he see? Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Standing in the Jewish culture. When a king or person of authority was reigning, they were seated in their throne. And when the priest was praying or interceding, he stood up and extended his arms. Moses, when he prayed for the people, stands up. Even today, it's amazing. So often, how many times do we say, let's pray, everybody stand with me? Why? This goes back in history so long, it was, it become a tradition. So at this moment in time, the greatest moment of need in the life of Stephen, he looks to heaven knowing he's going to die in a moment, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, interceding for Stephen at that very moment. If we can get that reality, that picture in our minds and our hearts, knowing the same thing is taking place for us, the same great high priest, is interceding for you and me. No matter what you're going through, whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever trials before you, whatever danger might confront you, Jesus, the high priest, the eternal high priest, is interceding for you and for me. And this is the point that the writer of Hebrews was making to the Jewish people. This is the significance of this type or Christophany we call Melchizedek that we serve a superior king and a superior high priest. And through him, all blessings flow. Through him, all blessings flow. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Our blessings come through the work of Christ. Our blessings come as children of God, like we sang about today. Our salvation, our great high priest, and all the blessings. That's who Jesus is for us. Let's close in prayer. The close in prayer, I'm going to read Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter, chapter 3. <clears throat> Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, be strengthened with power through his might, through his spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or even think, according to power that works within us, to him be the glory 
in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Father, I thank you for that love. Father, I pray that by your spirit, our understanding, our appreciation, our love for Jesus grows and grows and grows. That in these days and the days that lie ahead, our faith will be planted firmly upon the rock of Jesus Christ. That he is our hope, he is our trust. He's our salvation. Father, we thank you. I pray, God, now as we go our different directions that you would watch over us and keep us safe. And we continue to pray for all of our leaders at the local levels through the state level to the national level. We pray for our president and all those around him the vice president, all of our legislators. God, we pray that as leaders that have been established by you, they would seek your wisdom and they would make decisions based on the leading of your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.